from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Bijan Masumian on May 27, 2020. Bijan co-authored a book with his wife Farnaz and his son Adib called The Secrets of True Happiness. Bijan explains the scientific research behind the book and the fundamental prerequisites for true happiness. I have Bijan read an excerpt from the book in the interview. I started the interview by asking Bijan where he grew up. And what was religious life like growing up? I was actually born in a small town called Zaware in the central province of Isfahan in Iran. I was born a Baha'i, and the Baha'i faith, of course, is for those of you who don't know anything about this religion, is the latest of world religions that appeared in today's Iran. Back then it was... uh, called Persia in the mid-19th century. It's now all over the world. I stayed in that small town with my family until about uh, 1963 or 64 when I was 11. And then my family moved to Tehran, the capital city of Iran. I uh, was there until 1979 when the Iranian revolution happened. Literally a few days before we left Iran, my wife and I, Farnaz and I, got married and got out and have been in the U.S. ever since. And we both are third-generation Baha'is. It was tough to grow up as uh, as a Baha'i, especially for me during those 11 years when I lived in that small town. In fact, when my mother was pregnant with me, that's one of the times when a major anti-Baha'i upheaval happened in Iran after a cleric went on the Iranian national radio with the approval of the Shah during the month of Ramadan and had some fiery anti-Baha'i speeches and that instigated a great deal of violence across Persia. And at that time, my mother actually was pregnant with me. She later told me she almost lost me when uh, persecutors were attacking the Baha'i neighborhood in that town. And she had to hide in a closet and eventually had to try to escape the home when she heard that some of the mob actually broke through the wall and and the door, the entrance door, and and, uh, tried to find the residents in the house. And she just jumped over a short wall and she thought she had lost me. But I I guess I survived. (laughs) What was your story exiting Iran? Well, it's interesting because Farnas and I um, were both among the last group of students to legally get out of Iran. And by that, I mean the U.S. Embassy was still open 
of course, with uh, reduced staff in Tehran. And we had uh, admissions from George Washington University in Washington, D.C. There were, I think, about 70 of us students with admissions from U.S. universities. The U.S. consulate, they kept pushing it out. They kept saying next week, next week. And eventually, we actually had to do a sit-in. And they finally agreed to give us visa. So we got out. And shortly after that, that was, I think, May of 1979. We married on May 13, 1979, and we were at JFK three days later. So that's how quickly we got married and got out. And then within a few months, in November of 1979, the hostages were taken, and the rest is history, of course. So when you came to this country, you immediately had a place to go for university, I suppose. Technically, yes, but honestly, it wasn't as simple as that because Farnas hardly spoke any English. I had a bachelor in English language and literature, but that was mostly a knowledge of reading and writing in English, a very little conversational skill. And I was 24 and Farnas was 22 at the time. This was our very first trip out of Iran. So uh, we went through culture shock, language shock. (laughs) Mm. So the first few months were uh, extremely difficult. Mm. But we hung in there, and eventually with help from some angels, there's no other way to describe them, angels, life got easier, and um, eventually we started going to George Washington, in my case, and finally transferred to Georgetown University because she had started her bachelor's studies at the University of Tehran in Arabic language and literature, and there weren't too many universities at that time in the U.S. that offered programs in Arabic language and literature. Georgetown University, which wasn't too far from GW, actually was among those, but both George Washington University and Georgetown University were private schools, so they were expensive. And for the first couple of years, our parents were kind enough to support us financially. But then the government stopped the high parents from sending money to their mm-hmm. kids. Our parents contacted us and said, sorry, but we can't support you anymore. So you are on your own. Mm-hmm. So I started looking for universities, state universities that offered Arabic language and literature programs to accommodate Farnaz's need. And at that time, I could find only two institutions of higher education, state universities. One was the University of Texas at Austin, and the other one was the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Honestly, at that time, we looked at the weather and the temperature. We are not cold weather people, neither Farnas nor I. And we also noticed that Austin was averaging 300 days of sunshine a year. Those two factors were good enough for us to to consider Austin. And we moved to Austin, uh, I think, in August of 81. And except for a short stint in the late 80s, when we moved to Arizona, the rest of the time we have been in Austin, almost 40 years. And you are related to Mavash Sabet. Can you tell us her story? Mahavash and I are actually second cousins. Mahavash's grandfather on her father's side 
was my dad's grandfather on his mother's side. Both Mahvash and I were born in that small town, Zaware, that I mentioned earlier. We practically grew up together, first in Zaware, which had a Baha'i neighborhood, then in Tehran until the 1979 revolution when I got married and left for the U.S. and Mahavash stayed. For as long as I can remember, Mahavash has been very dedicated to the faith. This dedication actually increased with age and eventually led her to become appointed as one of the members of the Yaran group or the Friends of Iran. This group of seven individuals were appointed to essentially replace the National Spiritual Assembly of the Baha'is of Iran because that official body was disbanded voluntarily after the Iranian government banned all Baha'i institutions. So the affairs of the community still had to be conducted, you know, like marriage, divorce, things like that. And the Iranian government agreed that instead of Baha'is in Iran having a national spiritual assembly, that this body of seven would act as their representative. So Mahvash eventually and the other six individuals were arrested for their, what they called, I guess, Baha'i activities that were against the interests or security of the government, even though they had previously approved their activities. Eventually, all seven were sentenced uh, after some kangaroo court hearings to 20 years in prison, and the seven um, served about half of that sentence, about 10 years. Mahavash was released in September of 2017, the others uh, a little sooner or later. Um, I must also add that Mahavash spent about two and a half years of those 10 years in solitary confinement which is, I'm sure, intolerable to most of us. Was there not a famous Iranian-American journalist that was in prison at the same time and got to meet her and then wrote about her? Yes. You are referring to Roxana Saberi, who is um, actually half Persian, half Japanese, but uh, she's a U.S. citizen now. And so she spent... I think a total of about a month, two different occasions, two weeks each, with Mahvash and Fadiba. She wrote a book. I think in two different chapters, she explains her experiences with Mahvash and Fadiba, the two female members of the Yaran, or the seven, and the group of seven uh, Baha'is. By telling that story, popularized and the story of the Yaran and Mahavash and Fariba especially and I'm sure that that had something to do with their international notoriety the publication of that book and now Mahavash she fulfilled her prison sentence yes yes essentially that sentence that 20 year sentence was reduced to 10 they served the 10 years and they're out So she's free for now. Right. Who knows what happens tomorrow? So I'm speaking with Bijan Masumian, co-author of the book, The Secrets of True Happiness, which he wrote along with his wife, Farnaz, and his son, Adib. So is this the first time, Bijan, that you've co-authored a work with your son or your wife? 
No, actually, Farnas and I also co-authored a book called Divine Educators back in 2005. That book was also published by George Ronald, which published our latest book, The Secrets of True Happiness. So Divine Educators, in case anybody wants to know in your audience, that book identifies and discusses common themes and patterns in the lives of the founders of great religions of the world, like Moses, Raster, Buddha, Jesus, Muhammad, the Bab and Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. Adib and I have published a couple of articles together, but those are on Bobby Baha'i studies topics. And those have been published in the Baha'i Studies Review or BSR, which is a peer-reviewed journal. But we haven't done any book together. We have a third article actually coming up, which is by far the longest one, I think about 35 pages. And that will probably be published in Lights of Erfan or Lights of Gnosis. There is no date for that. We are thinking it could be sometime later this year, but I'm not sure at this time. Farnaz and Adib haven't published anything together. So what inspired your family to write a book on this topic, The Secrets of True Happiness? I think for many years, Farnaz, my wife, wanted the three of us to write a book together. Even though we have published things independently or even in pairs like with Adib and I that I just mentioned, we really hadn't published anything together as a family until this book. Prior to the idea of this book, Farnas had been meditating for, if I had to guess, probably over a decade and sometimes would spend a couple of hours a day doing different meditation practices at home. We do have a meditation room at home. So some of the practices that he engaged in were were like mindfulness, breath awareness, single object meditation, and so on. So these practices, of course, brought her personally peace of mind, concentration, focus, things like that. And she eventually ended up writing a book on the subject of meditation called The Divine Art of Meditation, which was published, I believe, in 2014. But what really sort of catapulted her into the idea of writing a book on happiness was when she came across a book by someone by the name of Alan Locks. So Alan spells his name with two L's and A-N, so A-L-L-A-N, and Locks, L-U-K-S. Alan Locks wrote a book, which is really now a classic in the field of positive psychology and volunteerism, called The Healing Power of Doing Good. In that book, Locks offered what Farnas considered a more potent approach than meditation, to living a fulfilling and rewarding life. And that was living a life of service rather than just meditation. She still remembers the very paragraph actually that changed her perspective on life and meditation. And I have that paragraph handy here. So here's what Locke says on uh, page 65 of that book. He says, for many people, helping others produces more powerful experiences than meditation. 
it can often be easier to get outside yourself and so break the usual chain of stress reduction by coming to another person's aid than by sitting motionless in a quiet, darkened room silently repeating a phrase to yourself. Yet helping does duplicate meditation's complete shift of attention outside of one's daily focus. Helping is both a form of single object meditation in which you concentrate on others instead of a sound or phrase and a variation on what is known as mindfulness, a state of heightened awareness of all the emotions, thoughts, and sensations that come to you. So that's the end of the quote. Mm -hmm. So Alan Locke's is also, by the way, the person who coined the expression helpers high, hmm. which is that emotional, positive emotional state that some people experience after helping others. He conducted a lot of studies that showed that when you help others, it actually produces feelings of happiness because it activates reward centers of the brain just like some food or drugs could do. You just do it naturally by helping others. Today, actually, this Alan Locke's concept of helpers high has become internationally recognized as a way to recruit volunteers. So when Farnas saw all of that, she said, okay, I have found something that's much more powerful than meditation alone. So she started reflecting on the meaning of true happiness in life. She knew that meditation can give us peace of mind, but how can we attain peace of mind and peace and joy of heart and soul? That eventually led her to begin to read more and more on service. And soon she found herself reading books that addressed how humans can experience lasting happiness. Books that not only emphasize the importance of love, but also those that explain the role of things like faith, prayer, gratitude, and also included techniques that we can practice on a regular basis to cultivate those kinds of virtues within us. Many of these books were written by experts in the field of positive psychology. I mean, I'm going to name some names that I'm sure some of your audience are familiar with them, like Robert Emmons, who is a professor at the University of California, Davis, I think. Dr. Stephen Post, who is a best-selling author and has taught medicine over 30 years. And Dr. Khalil Khawari, who happens to be a Baha'i, and he is uh, emeritus professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. Roger Walsh, Barbara Fredrickson, and these are just a few names. We came uh, to get to know these people through their writings, and some of them, like Dr. Stephen Post and Dr. Khalil Khawari, they were kind enough to work with us. Uh, Dr. Stephen Post was so generous that he wrote a most humbling endorsement of this book after he read the manuscript when we were all done. And Dr. Khalil Khawari so generously wrote uh, the foreword for our book. So we are extremely grateful to both of them. 
in addition to reading a lot of classics from these wonderful people, Farnas then also came across the works of Norman Vincent Peale, mm. the, the great American minister and author who probably needs no introduction to most of our listeners. He is the one who popularized the whole idea of positive thinking, which is really sort of like the mother of positive psychology today. His book, best-selling book, The Power of Positive Thinking, has sold millions and has been translated, God knows, into how many languages now. But his whole philosophy of life that kind of combined faith with hope and optimism had a great deal of impact on Farnas. She still reads Pill's book every day. In fact, just a few hours ago, she was telling me that she was reading one of Pill's books again today. So she became very passionate and excited about this whole new outlook on life and kept sharing her findings with Adib and me. And needless to say that we were also very supportive of her and encouraged her to continue on this path. Until one day, she asked Adib and me if we were interested in writing a book on the subject of true happiness with her. It was a Sunday morning. We still remember that. (laughs) She invited us to go to our study. She shared all the materials and research she had gathered up to that point and asked if we were interested in helping her finish the research and write a book together. We both loved the idea. Mm. And so that made her very happy because it meant that the three of us would finally work on a book project together. She's also a strong believer, I must add, in God answering all our prayers, but in his time, not ours. And I underline his time, because a lot of us pray and expect, first of all, all prayers to be answered yes, (laughs) as though no is not an option for God or not now is not an option for God. And, And in many cases, It's no. In some cases, it's not yet. So this is one of those occasions when um, her prayers were eventually answered. And when the right time arrived, the three of us came together and wrote this book. So I'm speaking with Bijan Masumian, co-author of the book, The Secrets of True Happiness, which he wrote along with his wife, Farnas, and his son, Adib. What do the three of you want the readers to get out of this book when they read it? Well, I guess ultimately we wanted this book to provide our readers with tips, techniques, and practices on uh, how to attain and maintain a state of happiness in life. The $64,000 question, if you will, is how do we get there? And that's the question that our book tries to answer. And for doing that, I must say that we draw from both science and religion by citing many, many studies and offering also wisdom from the scriptures of past and present. So we have quotes and excerpts from the Bible, the Quran, Buddhist and Hindu scriptures, and the Baha'i writings also. And I think all in all, the book contains over 400 40 or so citations. I would say it's uh, well-researched. So what makes this book 
unique or different from other books on happiness and positive psychology that you had referred to before? I think there are several things actually that make this book pretty unique. First of all, let me say that we didn't start this research with a preconceived notion or hypothesis that there might be some linkage between happiness and holding a religious or a spiritual outlook in life. But as we dug deeper and deeper into research, we actually ended up finding plenty of evidence that those who were religious or spiritual generally, but not exclusively, generally enjoyed happier, healthier, and longer lives. You may ask why. Well, because those individuals have more resources in their toolbox of life, if you will. And those resources keep them more resilient in times of crisis or when facing difficulties in life. Actually, this global pandemic that we are in the midst of right now is a great example. Imagine this for a second. Individuals with religious or spiritual outlook in life are often members of larger networks of people. For example, many Christians belong to churches. Many Jews go to synagogues. Muslims go to mosques. Buddhists and Hindus to their local temples. Baha'is to their local Baha'i centers. Now, suddenly with this COVID-19, when millions of the followers of these religions have been stuck at home, what do they do? they quickly turn to web-based technologies like Zoom, and they hold meetings, presentations, deepenings, devotions, and so on via the web. So to a great extent, their connections with their faith communities, which is sort of like their extended families, really remains intact. They continue to get spiritual energy, and rejuvenation from these relationships and interactions. And these helps them get through this kind of crisis probably a little bit easier than some other groups. So that's one. Another example, this book, I think I, I did mention that it includes a lot of quotes from the scriptures of past and present religions, but it also goes beyond spiritual exhortations. It provides details of many scientific studies by numerous experts, including medical doctors, university professors, you know, some of those names that I mentioned, such as Dr. Havari, uh, Dr. Stephen Post, Dr. Emmons, also independent researchers, and even uh, well-known neuroscientists like Andrew Newberg. If some, some members of your audience aren't familiar with Andrew Newberg, I highly encourage them to look at a couple of his works. One of his books is called Why God Won't Go Away. Hmm. Again, Why God Won't Go Away. And there's another one called How God Changes Your Brain. On the surface, that sounds like religious books, but far from it. It's very science-oriented. And essentially, Newberg and his colleagues conclude, and, and there are tons of studies in, their, in those two books, by the way, 
they conclude that the religious impulse is rooted in the biology of the human brain. <laughs> in other words, we are pre-wired to seek God and to try to know him. When I saw that, I was simply amazed as a Baha'i because that is in complete alignment with what Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, said over a hundred years ago when he said, and this is from gleanings for Baha'is, they are familiar with those, that, that's a selection from the writings of Baha'u'llah. Baha'u'llah says, the purpose of God in creating man hath been and will ever be to enable him to know his creator and to attain his presence. I was flabbergasted when I saw that a leading neuroscientist, after countless studies, comes to the same conclusion that Baha'u'llah did as a leader of a religion over 100 years ago. Now, here's the research part. Newberg and his colleagues imagined this. They just didn't make that up. Again, they came up with this revolutionary conclusion based on a lot of research that they did on the brain function and behavior. They used a tool called fMRI, which stands for Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging. So this tool, very much like MRI that a lot of us have gone through, but this one measures brain activity by detecting changes in uh, that are associated with blood flow. So imagine if you're connected to an fMRI piece of equipment and then you are stimulated or act, asked to do something when an area of your brain is in use because somebody asks you to do something or, or because you engage in a particular activity like prayer or meditation, that area of the brain the blood flow to that region increases. And fMRI can actually measure that. And they could examine, therefore, the brains of meditating Buddhists and Franciscan nuns during prayer and meditation. And they discovered that when these individuals intensely focus on spiritual contemplation, it triggered an activity in their brain that led them to perceive transcendent religious experiences as solid and tangibly real. In other words, for the Buddhists, it was like they felt one with the universe. For the Franciscan nun, they felt that they were in the presence of Jesus, and so on. They even photographed these changes in the brains of Buddhist monks and these nuns. And there were some additional studies that showed that for Buddhist monks that engaged in intense meditation for hours a day over countless years, and I'm talking about like 10, 15 years, the physical shape of the cells of their brain actually changed compared to the average person. That's phenomenal when you think that something intellectual actually transforms the shape of the human brain cell. But that's exactly what they observed during these studies. Not intellectual, so, though. You're saying uh, it's meditatively, right? Or, meditative, I'm yeah. sorry. Yes, meditative. Yeah. Something that uses the brain. That's what I meant. Here's another difference. One of the other studies that we looked at 
is probably the most significant study of the life course ever done and the longest recorded longitudinal study. And that is known as the Harvard's Grand Study of Adult Development. Think about this. That study began in 1938 and it is still going on. That focused on the lives of 268 male undergrad students at Harvard and continues to this day when some of those men are still alive well into their 90s, into their 90s. <laughs> and so we share some of the details of what that study found out. Just to give you an example, people who showed and experienced love more than others their chance of happiness and longevity was much higher than others. So love is a key ingredient. Mm. Another finding, more money and power does not mean more happiness. Mm. Uh, Another finding, intelligence matters, but only up to a certain point. And intelligence is not just IQ. It's also spiritual intelligence. It's emotional intelligence, which is now being discussed. It's also never too late to find happiness in life. Just because you are into your 50s or 60s doesn't mean that you cannot start experiencing happiness because of the neuroplasticity of the brain. Mm. So those were some of the findings of that study. Another difference that we see. Most research that we found also indicates that one of the surest ways to create and maintain happiness is to lead a spiritual life. Therefore, at the outset, the very first chapter of the book is actually called The Purpose of Life because we wanted to establish that early. Why are we here? Why are we on this planet? That helps us identify and give direction to our lives. And so because of the significance of developing a spiritual outlook early in life, We include insights from both science and religion throughout the book as to why it's important to have harmony between these two critical dimensions of human life, meaning both science and religion. And and this is, to our knowledge, the very first book on happiness that considers both scientific evidence and wisdom from the scriptures. So I'm speaking with Bijan Masumian co-author of the book The Secrets of True Happiness, which he wrote along with his wife Farnaz and his son Adib. So Bijan, what was it like writing a book with the family? <laughs> Frankly, it meant uh, spending a lot of weeknights and weekends being in uh, separate rooms, working <laughs> on three different devices. Farnos would be on the PC at home, and Adib and I would be on our individual laptops working on different parts of the book. Except for Saturday afternoons that are usually reserved for spending time with our extended family who happen to live in the greater Austin area, really the rest of the week we would, of course, during the day we would be working, and, and then in the evenings and the rest of the weekend we'll be working on this book. And sometimes in Adib's case and my case, we would also be working on those uh, Bobby Baha'i Studies articles that I mentioned. That was really the highlights of the past six years or so, because that's how long the research and writing of this book took, about six years. When was it finally released? 
well, technically in November of 2019 in Europe, and it became available uh, through George Arnold, the publisher in Europe first, but that was when Europe was also going through Brexit, so it took a while for copies to get to the U.S. Mm. Eventually, when it did get to the U.S., that's when the global pandemic began to hit the U.S. and the rest of the world. So Amazon, understandably, started focusing on uh, the essentials, like healthcare products for their first-line help, doctors, nurses, and so on. But they just started carrying our book, Amazon did. So yes, technically the book, if you look at the publication date, I think it says December 1st, 2019. But it became available in the U.S. just now. This morning when I checked, you could order it on Amazon. This is May 27th when we are doing this recording. If someone ordered the book today, it would be delivered to them around, I think, June 10th, so within a couple of weeks. Would you like to read an excerpt from the book? Speaking of the purpose of life, I think it may be appropriate to read some excerpts from that chapter, which is the very first chapter of the book and the longest one, actually. I think about 25 pages. So here's how the chapter starts. Have you ever met someone who didn't want to be happy? Probably not. Seeking happiness as a goal is one of the few things in life that everyone seems to agree on. However, most of us think that happiness is about having more of the things we find desirable. We think that if only we had more popularity, more money, more love, more power, a better job, then we would be happy. Yet if our happiness is dependent upon having more of these things, we will probably never find contentment because we may never know when more is enough. Paradoxically, the more we have of these things, the more of them we will probably want. Or worse, a new if only would arise. To reach a state of happiness in life, there are certainly skills and aptitudes that can help. For instance, having a high intelligence quotient or IQ may be a good thing because it could help us make better decisions. However, is having a high IQ a requirement for achieving happiness? Probably not. Today, there are plenty of happy people in the world who don't have particularly high IQs. Also, recent studies have shown that we might actually have multiple intelligences, not just IQ, including emotional intelligence and spiritual intelligence. So I'm going to skip now to page five because I think your readers may enjoy this too. This section is actually called The Purpose of Life, which is also the title of the chapter. Do any of these questions sound familiar? Who am I? Why am I here? What is the purpose or meaning of life? Am I simply an accident that happened because it was statistically possible? Or am I the deliberate creation of a loving God? These are examples of existential questions to which people with a high spiritual intelligence have provided satisfying answers in their personal lives. 
For centuries, however, these and similar questions on the meaning of life have perplexed the minds of philosophers and thinkers. A question that is often reflected upon is, is my life only the sum total of my education, my family, my job, my possessions, the bills I pay and the vacations I take? Or is there more to life? This search for meaning and finding the answers that are right for us is fundamental to feeling happy. Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, who was also a Holocaust survivor, once said, quote, Life is not primarily a quest for pleasure, as Freud believed, or a quest for power, as Alfred Adler taught, but a quest for meaning. The greatest task for any person is to find meaning in his or her own life. End of quote. It seems impossible to answer these tough questions without first providing a satisfying answer to a more fundamental existential question. What is the purpose of my existence? The question about purpose is more central because the answer to this question makes responding to the other questions easier. Our answer to the question of purpose will give a sense of direction to our life, to our goals, and to all our activities, hopes, and dreams. If we can't provide a satisfying, crystal clear response to the question of purpose, things will start getting fuzzy. And in the confusion that ensues, our life may begin to lose its meaning. We may begin to feel empty and unfulfilled. We may find ourselves lacking the drive, initiative, and the motivation to accomplish things. Eventually, we might become apathetic and lethargic, conditions that are dangerous to our psychological and spiritual health. We would continue to breathe and go through life, but we may not feel vital. And without vitality, we will have no hope for the future and little energy to accomplish much in life. At best, we will go through life with a passive orientation towards everything and everyone, a far cry from a fulfilling life. We were just listening to Bijan Masumian read from the book The Secrets of True Happiness, which he co-authored with his wife Farnaz and his son Adib. We had already spoken about where folks can find the book, and I'll also post links to where people can find your book when I post the interview on the YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective, as well as on the website, abahaiperspective.com. So now that this book is behind you and it's out there for people to read, this isn't the first time you've authored something in your career. Is there anything that you're developing at the moment that you are working toward? Uh, well, honestly, we are still trying to catch our breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this project took, again, about six years. I think in the coming weeks, we will be more focused on creating more awareness about this book mm-hmm. through social media, you know, like Facebook, and LinkedIn, and other venues possibly a couple of more interviews, 
We are also planning to create a Facebook page for the book, which will include inspiring stories, videos, and occasional sort of like blog-like entries on themes and topics that align well with the content of this book. Again, our ultimate goal really is to try to create more happiness and positivity in our world, especially now when we seem to be mired in difficulties, in violence, in negativity. I mean, just listen to the news, watch it on any channel, really, Mm -hmm. and tell me what percentage of what you hear or watch is uplifting or positive versus negative. It really, I think in many cases, it just saps your energy and depresses you. And so what we are trying to do is to create some positive energy in the world to give others a few tools and techniques and practices that perhaps they can use to lead a more productive, positive life. Bijan Masumian, co-author of the book, The Secrets of True Happiness, with his wife, Farnaz, and his son, Adib. Thank you so much for telling us about this work, and may this work bring us to a happier and fruitful world. Thank you so much, Bijan. Well, thank you for the invitation, Warren, and thank you, the listeners, for their time. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bijan Masumian, co-author of the book, The Secrets of True Happiness, which he wrote with his wife, Farnaz, and his son, Adib. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website com, and on the YouTube channel, A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org, or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Above all things, and nothing is.
hands are in the earth, but God suffices. Say God suffices all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens are in the earth, but God suffices. Verily, is in Himself the knower, the sustainer. Verily is in himself the knower, the sustainer, the omnipotent, the omnipotent, the omnipotent, the omnipotent. Say God suffices all things above all things. Nothing in the heavens or in the earth But God suffices Say God suffices All things above all things And nothing in the heavens or in the earth But God suffices Verily is in himself the knower The sustainer Verily is in himself the knower, the sustainer. Verily is in himself the knower, the sustainer. Verily is in himself the knower, the sustainer. Too much. 
darkness of the world be radiant flames. Now is the time, now is the time. In the darkness of the world be radiant flames. Now is the time, now is the time. Now is the time to serve, now is the time to be on fire. Where there is love, where there is love, nothing, nothing's too much trouble. Darkness of the world be radiant flames. Now is the time, now is the time. The darkness of the world be radiant flames. Now is the time, now is the time. Now is the time to serve, now is the time to be on fire. Now is the time to serve, now is the time to be. Nothing's too much trouble, and there is always time. Nothing's too much trouble, and there is, there is, there is always time. Where there is love, where there is love, nothing's too much trouble, and there is always time. There is. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.